On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Carl Strong. Carl Strong for decades has done strong frames out of Bozeman, Montana, and more recently with some business partners, he's starting Pursuit Cycles. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the frame building world. We have a conversation for like 30 to 90 minutes or whatever it is, and then I upload that and I share that with you all. So it's about you know perspectives and passion and craft. It's about business. It's about marketing. You know, Each different builder brings something different to the table. Some of them are very process heavy. Some of them are you know like, for instance, this week we're talking to Carl Strong. He has a lot of thoughts about business and he talks about business more than most people. That's super interesting. It's been helpful to me in the past to read um, sort of some of the things that he's written and some of the interviews where he's talked about business. And because I knew that he was kind of open about that, I had called him up at least one time on the phone uh, to talk to him in the past couple of years. And he recommended a book and I read the book and it was really helpful to me. And so I wanted to get him on the show and I figured we were mostly going to talk about business, the business of running a small scale custom frame building shop, right? And so just in a nutshell, we don't talk about his history too much, but um, in a nutshell, he started building bikes in the early 90s, and it was just an assumption of his, like it is most people, I think, or a lot of people, assume that you just scale it bigger and that's going to make it better. The more bikes you build or the more widgets you make or the more, you know, of your service that you sell, you know, the, the better it is and that you imagine a business like Amazon.com, it can only exist at scale. They work on razor thin margins. They have this complicated, you know, algorithm and whatever, all these things. And it works when you have the scale, then everything kind of works and it only works at scale. And so anyway, for all these reasons, we're in a culture where a a lot of the business models that we see that succeed are scale business models. It's just sort of, it's just kind of obvious. It's kind of intuitive. Like, of course, we would want a scale business model. We need to do more volume so that we can have better economies of scale. We get better, you know, price per piece and whether our customer is paying a whole bunch per piece and we're getting rich or whether we can offer low prices because we have these economies of scale or however you want to think about it. That's just sort of the, um, the assumption that a lot of people have. Carl had that assumption. He built his business based on that. And after 10 or 15 years, he started to challenge that assumption. By this point, he had six or so employees. He managed a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, risk. He had uh, big payments going out every month and big payments coming in. It was boom and bust. Uh, you know, he talks about this on other places, but uh, basically he started to challenge this assumption that scale was helpful or necessary. And what he's moved towards since then is scaling back. So now it's just a one-man show pretty much. He makes the bikes, he sells the bikes, he does the customer work. Uh, and then his wife helps him a little bit with finishing and, and you know maybe photographing the bikes and some other things. And I think he has a couple other people that help him just a little bit. I think it's mostly him. I think he does about 50 bikes a year. And so his, his business model, we talk about that. He lays that out for like how he thinks you can run a small shop like that profitably, make more money than someone who owns a shop that might do 500 bikes a year. And, um, and you know, his experience with that, the things he's learned and the things that he recommends to other frame builders. I think a lot of people have a hard time selling bikes at the volume and the price that they need to, and they assume scale is going to solve their problem. And he makes a, I think, a compelling case for why you shouldn't assume that that is going to solve your problems. It will probably make things worse. Yeah, where we cut into the interview here, 
is uh, where I asked him to lay out basically what is the business model of being a frame builder if we define it. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, as far as the custom bike industry is concerned, you know, the key components to a business model, at least in the beginning, are, you know, always that the um, you're producing your own product and you're typically selling it consumer direct. Um, as far as the, the value that you're producing or providing or offering, um, you know, it's going to be different for every builder. And so, you know, some, some builders are going to, you know, sell status. Some builders are going to sell, uh, you know, an art piece maybe. Um, my, my brand, I sell an experience primarily. Um, some people may be fit specialists. Some, you know, people may have the prettiest paint. And so it's going to really just depend on what um, resonates with any particular customer. But I think one of the keys and one of the hard things to learn as a new builder is, you know, what is it in your soul that, uh, you know, um, drives you to produce some element um, that people respond to and, and then, you know, how do you recognize what that is and then sort of focus your efforts on offering it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what happens with builders in the beginning is they just are doing a little bit of everything and they're just trying to see what sticks and it takes a long time to um, just learn who you are and what you have to offer. Um, and I say that from the point, you know, the perspective of the customer, not the builder. And so what I learned is, you know, over time you have enough customers and you sell enough bikes, you start to see this pattern of, you know, what is, what are the, what are the smoothest transactions? How are you producing the happiest customers? Um, what, what is, which transactions were the, you know, most interesting or fun for the builder? And then, you, you know, you focus more and more on, on, on that, whatever that common element that ties those, those transactions together is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you start to have a, a, a pattern of success and a pattern of things that you, maybe you're, <laughs> you're working harder, uh, you know, you just steer in the direction of what, what feels more natural. Yeah, and one of the problems is, you have to have enough transactions over a short enough period of time to, to see that pattern. If you're selling 12 bikes a year, I mean, that's not very many bikes, and they're all a month apart on average, right? Mm-hmm. Between each bike, you forget a lot. You don't see patterns develop as quickly. So it's harder to identify what that, you know, what that, that one key, you know, part of your personality people are responding to. Mm-hmm. So, when, you know, when, cut, when builders get started, there's two things that they battle. One is they can't get enough for their bikes because nobody's ever heard of them. Um, or they take too long to build the bike, or both, typically. Mm-hmm. And so those are the two big hurdles. You get your occasional builders that you know, have that, that thing that people respond to and they instantly get demand, you know, mm-hmm. and those are the lucky few and you can see examples, you know, and the one I like to use it because I know him and I like him and he's here locally is Adam Sklar. 
Um, he, uh, you know, he got off the ground pretty darn quick. Yeah. Um, but, you know, because he had, you know, uh, a unique looking bike, he's got great taste, good style, good color choices. Um, people really responded to him, you know, mm-hmm. even, you know, he makes good bikes now, but in the beginning they weren't great bikes cause he hadn't made that many, you know, now he's made enough bikes. He does a good job of it. Mm-hmm. Are you still there? Yeah, I am. Okay. For a second, I was worried that it had Sorry, cut I, I was, I, 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 that was all I had to say. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think for sure, um, you know, you've said it, and definitely differentiating yourself is a, something that a lot of people struggle with. And it's, it's interesting f- for me, because I know that my taste is that all the builders that I get, that I, that I have the most in common with in terms of style and what, what I like the most is like, I like pretty straightforward stuff. Um, I think, you know, bicycles should just ride really well. And so they don't necessarily need to have lots of, um, you know, you know, whimsical or, or sort of like gimmick elements to them in order to, to serve the function. And so usually, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm designing a bike and stuff, I want to have, you know, pretty straightforward looking stuff which can work, but, um, it doesn't necessarily help you stand out in a crowd of other builders unless, you know, like, like there's, there needs to be some other element. Is it paint or is it, um, you know, is it you and the way that, you know, you put a spin on it personally or, um, you know, what, what is it And differentiating yourself? Of course is tricky. I never found when I was building exactly what it was about my bikes that was going to super resonate with people or what would make them that much different from other people. But I, I do think like over time I started to get at least a little bit more in that direction where I knew what I wanted to do, which was not evident at all when I started. When I started, it was uh, I was just interested in playing with different techniques. And so I was trying fillet brazing and lugs and bilaminates and TIG welding. And, and it was just kind of you know playing in the shop, trying to like learn these new processes for, for fun. And I didn't have any sort of sense of where I even wanted to take it. And I think you sort of have to go through that to, um, you know, there has to be examples out there for people to respond to. And I mean, if you know who you are right off the bat and you go out and boom, you know, that's what you're making and people buy it, then, you know, good for you. You're lucky. I, you know, when I started, it was the early nineties and people, the primary bikes that people rode high performance bikes were, um, they were lugged steel. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, I, w- not, I wasn't the innovator of a TIG welded road bike, but at the time there just wasn't that many TIG welded road bikes. You know, Ibis made one and there was probably a couple, two, three other brands that did it. But for the most part, they were all lugged or fillet braised, both of which processes I've used and built lots of bikes with. But the TIG welding really turned me on because of the flexibility in which tubes I could use, which materials I could use, and so on. So we were really early building TIG welded road bikes. And I spent a lot of time apologizing for them because the attitude in the marketplace was, oh, TIG welded road bikes are, you know, they're not, not, not nearly as good as a um, lugged or a brazed road bike. So a lot of my marketing materials was defending the TIG welded bike, which is funny to think about now because, you know, nobody questions the quality or efficacy of a TIG welded bike anymore. Um, the other thing that was different back when I started was that we were building better bikes than a person could buy. Mm-hmm. So 
we were offering a certain quality level of, you know, craftsmanship, uh, the straightness of the frame, um, on top of it being custom and or unique. And nowadays with the bikes that you can go to the store and buy being so good and better probably in quality than most custom bikes these days, especially, and I hate to be the one to say this, but with all the new builders out there, there's a lot of junk. Mm-hmm. And um, you can go buy uh, you can go buy a really good bike. So nowadays, what the fr- custom frame builders are seeming to offer more than anything is fashion. So we're kind of shifting from a technocratic, high performance industry to a fashion industry. <laughs> I think that's a, a you know I, I'm not I'm not the expert on what quality everybody else is doing and I haven't inspected you know failure tested uh, all these all these other bikes but that I think that makes a lot of sense to me that I think you know a lot of what people are differentiating themselves on is stylistic and um, you know I mean to some degree that's probably what it needs to be uh, I remember you were saying something once in an interview or to me or something about how you used to talk more about quality as a, as like a, in, an intentional message in your marketing. And you realized at some point over time, I think I'm maybe paraphrasing here, but I believe this is you saying that you realize at some point that like your customers, when they're spending that kind of money, they just kind of assume that it's quality and they're not always a fabricator to know or to like fact check you. And so, like, if you just keep talking and talking about quality and you show them the pictures of the welds as, like, cited evidence and you show them, you know, your mitering process and how you maybe, you know, use a ultrasonic cleaner to clean the titanium. And, you know, it's like it's not really has anything to do with why they would want to buy the bike or why you would stick out to them. Like, they want to they want to know that you're you're making a quality product, but like, you know, like you could you could suggest that just with really good looking photos and then you could talk to them about what they're actually excited about, which is, you know, where they're going to ride it, how it's going to fit, maybe how it's going to perform better for them because of the, the whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, and they, they can evaluate and they don't, and they don't, you know, I mean, they, they, like you said, they assume the quality is there. That's why they've bothered to call you to begin with. You know, if they weren't confident in the quality, they would never get on the phone with you. But, um, I think that in the beginning, when your quality isn't the best, you spend a lot of time basically trying to um, justify it, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. Um, and, you know, after a while, after you've made so many bikes and your quality is, you know, basically consistent, um, you just don't think, you know, as a builder, you just don't think about it anymore, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I used to think about quality a lot because I was constantly trying to achieve the perfect bike, but you know, your learning curve gets pretty flat after a while. Yeah. And, um, and then you just start thinking about other things, you know, I mean, when, um, and I'm not trying to sound braggy or anything, but building a bike is easy Yeah. for me because I've done it so many times. Yeah. So many times. And, yeah. So I just don't, you know, it's, I, there's very few challenges. I mean, the biggest challenges for me really are making sure I don't screw up um, fitting all the new standards, you know, chain rings hitting chain stays or whatever. You know, those are the kind of stupid things that catch me off guard every now and then. But other than that, you know, actually just making a bike is, is easy. 
Yeah, I, I've heard I've heard uh, from other people actually claims about how quickly you could fabricate a bike frame being like a couple of hours. And, um, and I think about that sort of thing a lot that like, um, I mean, if you care to talk about how quick, how, you know, how long it takes you to do these things, you know, just, I imagine my thought always with, with business stuff, when you're the owner operator of a small business, that's customer service oriented and you have to do your own marketing is that you can't afford to spend all your time fabricating. So even if you built a bike a week, you can't spend three days a week building frames because, you know, you have to assemble it and box it and ship it. You have to budget time throughout the year to go to trade shows. You have to do, um, you know, all your taxes and your marketing work and your phone calls. And like, there's just a million things you have to do. You can't, I feel like a lot of times you can't afford to spend actually that much of your time on the fabrication itself. Plus, plus it's exhausting, you know, I mean, I've done production and, you know, if you did 40 hours of actual fabrication a week, you'd be miserable. Yeah. At least I would, you know, it would just be miserable work. Um, but you're right. You know, I, what I like to tell people that ask me for my advice is that, you know, being a custom frame builder is two jobs, not one. You know, you're a small business owner and you're your and you're that small business owner's only employee, the frame builder. And so depending on how many hours a week, you know, you need to split it up. I think that, you know, for, um, you know, for metal bikes, and I, I know a lot of frame builders and I talk to them and I know how long they spend building their bikes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's really fast guys out there. I mean, super fast. And I think John Slot is, I don't know him and I've never talked to him about it, but he's kind of the, probably the most famous dude for being really, really efficient, effective and making a bike quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I've heard all kinds of numbers coming from him. Um, Paul Sadoff's another one that I think gets bikes built pretty quickly. For me, um, you know, it takes, for me to like take a steel tube set and get it all brazed into a bike and ready to send to the painter. If it's like a straight up road bike, it, you know, three hours, maybe. Um, if it's a more complicated mountain bike, maybe five. Yeah. And then you can double that for titanium. That would be the, the time it takes to get it to um, yeah. Loretta finish work. And then she, she, you know, she spends, you know, three hours maybe um, getting it, you know, all dialed in after that. Yeah. Um, that's uh, just you know, amazing compared to what I would have assumed, you know, after years of being interested in frame building, having taken an old school lugged frame building course where we did everything by hand and then, you know, toiling away in my shop with not a lot of tools. Uh, I remember the first time I heard those sorts of numbers, I was just like, that's ridiculous. That's like, how is that possible? I think one time I had a tube set and I had finished the design and I just went to my shop and like started building and I was working long days and I got a bike done in like a week, you know, and I was like, ah, that's not too bad. You know, like if I had a lot more tools, I could probably get it done in two days. And I thought that was, you know, it's just like I had no perspective about um, <laughs> about where things could go or, you know, what they would need to be in order to be sustainable at all. And, and you got to have the right tools, you know, and you got to know when to use them and when not to use them. I think you were talking away the other day, Vulture, and he's like, Sure, I could like fixture a seat stay bridge and cut it on a mill, but I could also just file it in two minutes and be done with it. You know, yeah. 
And that was something you had made those YouTube videos, those like frame building webisodes, episode one, two, three, or whatever that were on YouTube. I watched those like a thousand times. I'm so fascinated to watch other people work and pick up all the little tips I can. And that was something I saw that you were building a road bike, steel TIG welded road bike, and you would use, you know, some simple mitering setups for main tubes and different things. And when it came to the seat stay bridge, you just had a big half round file and it was, you know, it was a couple strokes on either side. You checked it, you did another stroke or two, and then it fit. And, and you know, when you have that level of experience and the, the vice and the file right there, it'd be foolish to do it any other way. Yeah, or, you know, I see a lot of pictures of people putting, like, water bottle brazons on, and they got these fixtures holding them in place, you know, <laughs> and it's like gravity will do a fine yeah. job. That's funny, too, because I, I, yeah, in your video I saw you doing the brazons, and you would braze them on, they're sort of self-fixturing, and then you had a little nail, and you could kind of push around the diamond reinforcer if it got crooked, and I was like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good tip there, and that's always how I did them, as I figured they were self-fixturing, and then a year ago, I released these little braze clamps, these simple tools that I've sold quite a few of, and people seem to love them, and they tag me in their photos, and I see how they use them, and a lot of people are using them to hold uh, the water bottle boss mounts on square, which... You know, I'm really glad that they bought the tool, and I think it probably would help them sit a little bit more square, I guess, but it just never even crossed my mind, because to me, that was something that was like 100% self-fixturing, you know, <laughs> but you know, people have all these different ideas because they're not watching other people work, and um, you know, if, if it was crooked, I guess the, the cage would sit a little bit crooked in the frame, maybe. Well, if you do, if you do... Um you know, let's say you build five bikes a year, right? You're doing 20 or 30 water bottle bosses a year. Yeah. Probably the tool is a good way to go. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, after you've done so many water bottle bosses, you, you just don't need it anymore. But, you know, and that all goes back to time and time, you know, the time goes down with experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't work fast. I work slow, but everything goes so smoothly Mm -hmm. And I don't have any questions. I don't ever have to stop and think. I don't ever have mistakes. I don't, you know, so by the time it's all said and done, you know, when Eric from Alliance Bicycles was working here, I would come in at 6 in the morning and hand off a frame to him, at, you know, when he showed up at 11. And then he could take it, you know, through the finish. And we would do that, and we'd be able three, four, five steel bikes a, a week, and he was working like eight hours. Yeah. And we were, we were cruising. Yeah. And, and so what I love about your story that you've talked about in, in other interviews and stuff is, I mean, I think the, the basic narrative of it is like you assumed bigger is better. You built your business bigger throughout the nineties and into the two thousands. So you could do more volume. And what you found was that the, like the business model that you had uh, wasn't scalable that like, as you grew the business bigger, you spent less time doing the fabrication and each of the customers still wanted to talk to you. They didn't want to talk to your employees. They wanted to talk to you. And there's only so much of you to go around. Meanwhile, um, you're signing big checks for materials and you're signing people's paychecks. And then if you're doing contract manufacturing work or if your customers are late to pay you, uh, you could pretty easily go out of business. So you're like managing more risk, you're managing more stress. And what you said uh, a couple interviews is like when you 
changed your business model to being smaller scale to focus more on the customer service element and to downsize into doing it in your in your backyard shop uh, with your wife was that like you you made the same amount of money or more and you it was just a lot it was it, there wasn't so much friction you weren't pushing so hard and I always thought that was super telling and super um, refreshing perspective because I just you know it, it takes like you have this assumption about the way the world is and how business is and then you say like if I don't challenge this assumption if I don't think critically I might go totally in the wrong direction like I need to think critically here about what what I really offer and where the money really is yeah ex- you got it you nailed it it's exactly the case so you know I think as uh, an, at least as an American person you're always taught that you know you should grow a business, grow, 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 bigger's better. If you're not growing, you're dying, blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of assumptions not necessarily true. Um, but so you automate, so that's your business model, right? You just, without ever thinking of a business model in particular, you've already created one. It's a scale business model. And so we're trying to scale these handmade bikes that are, you know, bought, bought um, based on a relationship with an individual. So, you know, if you start taking away that relationship, you know, that reduces the value of the bike. Um, If you start selling them through um, retailers, and I think, you know, back then it was a little tougher. I think now, you know, you see some good examples of people that are, you know, doing a really good job at it, like Mosaic and 22. Mm -hmm. Moots is always pretty good. But... You know, for when you look at it, uh, the rate of return on a business, you have to look at that rate of return relative to the resources that produced it, right? So <clears throat> if you have eight employees and a big shop that costs you $100,000 a year to operate, your payroll is $400,000 a year or whatever, and um, you've got all this risk, and then you personally take home X dollars, Right. Or you work out of your garage with no employees and $20,000 worth of tools and you take home that same X amount of dollars, well, your rate of return is a lot higher because you don't have the investment or the risk to make that same money. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is that if I optimized my average sales, kept my margin as high as possible and produced at a certain level... I can make as much or mo- money or more than I could with, uh, you know, making 500 bikes with six people working for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that's the route I went. So I could get rid of, you get rid of that um, workman's comp insurance. You get rid of all the payroll taxes. You get rid of the stress. I mean, I remember when my employees were getting married and having babies. I think I got more stressed out about that than they did. <laughs> Because suddenly, you know, you've got this obligation. Yeah. And, um, and, and I mean, I'm not against growing a business. And I think what, you know, you know, people have done is fantastic. Everybody has different goals. My advice has always been learn how to maximize your income as a single individual frame builder. And then if you want to build on that, based on the knowledge that you've developed, go out and build on it. But don't try to come out of the gate growing the business into the scale business model, this handmade uh, frame building business model, because it's it, you're, you're probably not 
going to find the success as quickly. And, you know, I've looked at these businesses that you think are doing great, you know, and from the outside, you want to model your business after them. And um, then all of a sudden you find out they're going broke or they're going out of business or nobody in the business is making money. They got these big offices and vans and they're all these bikes and they're in all of these bike shops. And then the, you know, the owner, you know, is making like 75,000 bucks a year. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, that's a freaking waste of effort. Yeah. You know? So I think that when you're looking at models to emulate, um, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta, don't get fooled, I guess. Yeah. I, I had this job in a CNC machine shop and I was still doing some, you know, hobby frame building stuff in my own shop. And I remember my manager, I didn't, I didn't think he was that smart of a guy, but he, he, uh, he would say, Oh, well, how many hours does it take you to make a bike and what's your cost? And you know, you know, if you just made more of those, you could charge less for them and then you could make so much more money. And I don't think he's ever sold things. I don't think he's ever had a job where he had to sell stuff or deal with customers. I think he's worked, you know, as like a machinist programmer and, and like a, you know, running a shop and he's good at those things. But, uh, but there's like this sort of leap that people make that things are going to sell themselves. And if you could only produce more of them, then, you know, you could, you could get a, a better, um, price per piece, uh, you know, because you, you know, your, your fixed overhead or whatever divided by more pieces. And so, you know, you just need to make more of them. And the way that I think about that now, when I think about this and what I thought at the time, when I rolled my eyes at him was that, uh, you know, it's like, if I can't sell a quality bike, you know, to somebody for however many thousand dollars that I would need to, why do I think it's going to be easier to sell, you know, three or 10 times as many of them to more people. Like I might be able to say it's a lower price, but it's not going to be as cheap as a bike you can get anywhere else made in Taiwan or something. And it's not going to have that same level of customer service and care. And it's like, why would I think that it's going to be easier if I just scale it bigger like that? I feel like that's a really dangerous assumption. And now I'm so used to thinking that way that I think sometimes I'm like unnecessarily averse to the idea of scale when sometimes it would benefit me or sometimes it can work for other frame builders. Uh, Like there's times when maybe it does work, but I'm like so used to seeing and thinking about the ways that it can be a, a, you know, a pit or a trap um, because I, I don't know, I, I see a lot of ways that it does fail for people too. Here's the business model I tell people. Now, it's a real easy business model to imagine. It's a harder one to achieve. But let's just say that you make sell 50 bikes a year. And on average, those bikes are $10,000. That's $500,000 in sales, right? Mm-hmm. So then most of the time, you should be able to hold a margin of about at least 50%. That's, you know, 70 plus on the frame. 40 plus on the parts, blended margin, 50-ish um, uh, uh, percent. So that means your gross profit on those sales is 250 grand. If you work out of your house and you're paying for insurance and not a lot of other stuff, supplies and things, you keep your overhead to 15%, right? So that means you're taking home 35. So that's $175,000 pre-tax income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if you think about that, I mean, 50, $10,000 bikes a year, I mean, 
in the beginning, it's going to be really hard to get that average price up. It's going to be really hard to build that many bikes. Um, but as you get more and more experienced and people learn about you, um, and you, if you steer, learn how to steer people towards the higher end, um, you get there. Now, you can take somebody, so there you're making $175,000 a year, taking home 110 or whatever, 120 of that. So um, if, uh, now you can run a big company, you know, and um, maybe you're making 500 bikes and you're only selling frames, or maybe you're making 250 bikes and you're only selling frames and your sales are a million dollars, but you end up taking home 10% of that then you're only taking home 100,000 pre-tax and you got all the risk and everything else that goes along with it. So, um, but there is an upside to having a company, which is you can get to a point where it starts to break, break away. You're not going to be a custom bike maker anymore, but um, the, the biggest benefit to having a company is that you can stop working in it and it'll continue to make money for you, right? Yeah. Where... With a custom frame building company, you stop working, you stop making money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people, I've heard people say, you know, do you want to own a business or do you want to own a job? And yeah. um, and sometimes you just want to own a job. You know, you like the work, it's satisfying and it's fun and, um, and you just want to be able to do it on your terms. You want to go to your own shop, you don't want to work for somebody else. And that's how I've usually thought about it and felt about it. But um, yeah, traditionally... Uh, you think about a business as like a system that you could sell to someone else. Uh, it's exactly right. So if you have a job, you just need to make sure you invest your money so that one day you don't have to work, you know, buy apartments or whatever, you know, put it in a index fund, however you like to invest your money. Yeah. Now, something that I'm really interested in that's sort of in the questions, maybe a little bit differently, but it's... Um, well, I'll just say it like this. So when I was getting started building bikes, money was tight. I think this is common for a lot of new builders. And so it, it seemed like really difficult. You know, the, part of the thing was that I was straight out of college and I had jobs working in bike shops for like a hair over minimum wage. And I was doing those part time. And there's a lot of things I could have done to try to get my income up so I had more to work with. And um, and partly it's just, you know, it, it takes time to establish your, your skill sets that you can build quickly. And so people know about you, you know, partly I just needed to be more patient and maybe focus a little bit more on getting a bigger income. But um, it seemed really tricky for me when I was getting started, uh, because the ways that I could think of that seemed most effective to make impressions on my, you know, potential customers, they're all really expensive. Like going to a trade show, you know, you might spend $1,000 for a booth, but you have all the travel expenses of getting there. And what I think of as being the big expense is that you want to bring like three to five finished bikes. And we were just saying, you know, like maybe a $10,000 bike or something that you're paying a 50% or you're getting a 50% margin on, you know, you might spend $20,000 getting to one of these shows, bringing work that looks good so that you can hopefully get the attention of your customers and that just seemed totally out of reach and impossible to me and so and then on the other hand frame building is a relatively affordable business to start compared to a lot of other ones like you're saying you know you could get a good margin sell a lot of stuff make a lot of money and you might only have a 20 or fifty thousand dollar frame building shop going that's not that much money invested in order to do that kind of business and so i guess like i'm curious about your perspective on that generally, and then also your tips to people who are trying to get started. Like, what are some of the 
like higher ROI, you know, return on investment ways to uh, make impressions on people that are not ludicrously expensive? Um, that's, you know, that's a tough one because I'm definitely not a, a marketing genius by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I started my company when there wasn't a thousand frame builders out there. And um, what I would do is I'd put these little ads in the back of Velo News was my main thing until the internet came along. And then I got a website and I was pretty, pretty early on in the websites. Um, and, um, you know, I just sold what I could and I sold it cheap. And that probably, um, you know, it didn't help me make money, but it um, helped me get some bikes out there and, at the end of the day, you know, the biggest, your biggest uh, sales tool is a happy customer. To this day, you know, probably 30, in any given time, 30 to 40% of the people on my build board are return customers. And of the people that aren't, probably 10 to 20% were referred by a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's those happy customers are the, are the main thing. I think a strong website's important. Um, giving people, um, some meat. I go, every time I hear of a new builder, I go to their website Mm -hmm. and typically they're really superficial. Um, and one of the things that I hear is, uh, you know, a lot from people is your website's great. I love it. You know, there's a lot of information there and I can really just, there's some meat on the bone. I can really dig my teeth into it. People are saying that to you about your website. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love your website. Yeah. And so I think that really gets people, um, you know, to, to learn about me, to take the time to, to find out really who I am. Um, but there's kind of, you know, there's a sales funnel for the frame builders and it's kind of, um, you know, social media website call. And you just got to kind of, um, you got to get people to, you know, on social media and get them to your site and inspire them to email you. And then when you reply to their email, you have to inspire them to call. Mm-hmm. And that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's kind of how I approach it. Everything is all about getting people to the website, you know. So when I go to NABs, I don't go there to sell bikes. I um, I go there to get press coverage so that that press coverage drives people to my website. That's how I look at it. And mm-hmm. So when I got home and I did an ROI on NABs, I, my ROI was measured on, you know, what did my website traffic look like and how many new email addresses did I get? Oh. That's, that's a really interesting metric to use for that. Well, it keeps it simple and it's measurable, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's two kinds of marketing. You know, you can market for sales or you can market for awareness. And you can't really measure awareness. So I just throw the, that type of marketing, I just throw it out there and I try to, you know, like when I do market for, you know, traffic at my website, I just figure it's awareness also. But um, at the end of the day, everything I do is all about visits. You know, every, I constantly check who's on my site, how long they stay, how many pages did they go to, which pages did they go to, um, where did they come from? What percentage of those are converted into um, contacts? When I look at my sales, I look at my sales as a percentage of web visitors. Mm-hmm. So 
if I have, you know, let's say for every thousand visitors I get, I sell a bike. Mm-hmm. Then I know roughly if I get a thousand more visitors, I can get another bike sale. That's, I mean, it's super hyper simplistic and probably real marketing people would laugh at me, but that's how I do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta have some way to measure what you're doing and and trying to track your progress and what's working and what isn't. Yeah, and then you got to look at the quality of your web visits, you know, because you can get bad web visits. Like there's some sites that might post a little something about my site, and I'll get 2,500 visits in two days, but the bounce rate will be 70%. And then another site will send traffic to me, and maybe I only get 200 visits, but the bounce rate's 20%, mm-hmm. you know. And then I can also look at those specific bursts of traffic and I can see which ones converted into email inquiries um, or email um, subscriptions. Um, those are the you know two ways I can understand their interest levels besides the bounce rate. Yeah. And they have on site. Do you think the has the email newsletter been been a, a powerful tool for you? Yeah, it's a powerful tool. I can, if I want to sell a bike, I send out a, new, a newsletter and I almost invariably will sell a bike. Wow. You know, there's this, um, this is getting off topic from frame building, but it, it, you know, since this is more business heavy, I'll just say that I, I listened to this podcast a while ago. It's the MF CEO podcast, the episode where they interview this guy, Joel Marion, who does email marketing stuff. And it, to me, it's kind of snake oily, to be honest, but it was incredible to hear this guy talking about the ridiculous fortune he has made through like strategic um, application of email marketing. It's like it's bonkers how much money he's made doing that, uh, and it's it's really fascinating. If you care about business at all, it's it's just interesting to hear this guy talk about like the absurd fortune he's made and the specific. Uh, techniques that he's used with email marketing, and I, it just piqued my interest. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to um, sell the same kinds of things as him, or in the same sort of way. I feel like there's a lot of differences between him and me, but like it definitely got my attention. I was pretty fascinated to hear his story. Yeah, and I think you know you got to be careful with email marketing, especially in our business, because um, you know if you're just constantly selling, send, sending out sales letters, people mm-hmm. are going to get pretty of it. So I typically try to send out an email. I don't send out very many because I don't have time to make them. Mm-hmm. But I try to send out newsletters that are, you know, say 80 to 90% just good information and then maybe a 10% pitching my wares. If that even a lot of times I won't, you know. Um, sometimes if I have a new product offering, I'll send out a newsletter so people know about it. Hey, we got T-shirts in stock or, hey, you know, this we're selling this demo bike or whatnot, you know. Mm-hmm. But for Part, I try not to use them to sell. I use them to uh, share the passion mm-hmm. um, for cycling and custom bikes. Yeah. And that was this this email marketing thing that I heard. They were saying a lot of times you just you need to get uh, – I think he said like about a one-third of them would even have a link to a product that you could buy or like a heavy sales pitch. And a lot of them were just informational to the – the sort of niche that you're interested in because the number one thing he was saying with, uh, with email marketing is trying to inbox like that. Google knows that if you, if, if people want to click it open, 
then uh, then they'll put it actually in people's inbox and not in their spam folder. And so if people if the open rate is really low, if most people don't open it, then you won't get in the inbox, and then and then you have it's useless. And so you have to make something yeah. that people want to read and want to see. And so if it's just a sales pitch, uh, that doesn't do anything. But if you provide people, and I think this is like a general business lesson, right? It's like if you speak to what people are actually interested in, and you try and provide them some sort of value. Uh, you know, then they'll just be interested and, and, you know, you can talk with them and, uh, and occasionally you can mention the stuff, you know, you can make a sales pitch sometimes and, uh, you will have established some rapport. Yeah. Cause I think basically, you know, if you, if you imagine going for a bike ride with a bunch of people and after the ride, y'all go to the local brew pub and you sit around, drink beers and talk about your ride or bikes. That's what I want my newsletter to be. Yeah. That conversation. You know, but maybe giving people some insights that they're not going to get from, you know, the average cyclist that they see, you know, some maybe more specific, um, uh, more expert, more detailed information. One of the things I like to do is uh, case studies mm-hmm. uh, about how, uh, you know, we solve somebody's problem, you know. That's so awesome. Define the problem and um, tell them how it was solved. And those seem to be real interesting. People seem to like those. Yeah. Um, I want to hear more about strong frames and pursuit. You know, pursuit has been uh, your new venture the last couple of years to move into small scale manufacturing of carbon fiber frames. Whereas you had done custom strong frames carbon bikes in the past, pursuit is distinct and it's different. And to me, it sounds a little bit more like rather than you owning your job, you're trying to own a business. And uh, I'm just really fascinated by all of that. I would love to hear you talk more about Pursuit and your goals. Yeah, you bet. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, I'm 55 years old. I can't work forever. Um, I love um, cycling. I want to work in cycling. I like technology. Um, I and I've never really understood why a custom builder would just pick a material and dogmatically go down with the ship with it, you know? <laughs> it, it, it's the craziest thing, um, you know, you just see a builder start in steel and, you know, retire in steel, especially over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it just shows a real lack of curiosity to me. Um, I love to learn you know you're always hearing this steel is real and you're hearing criticisms by people about carbon fiber but it's typically people that don't make carbon fiber bikes that criticize carbon fiber yeah. bikes it's like typically the people that are criticizing the frame building business are the ones that aren't making any money and the ones that are making <laughs> money they don't have time to waste on the forms you know yeah um so you know, it's just like that small population of people are always the loudest. But at any rate, so I made the um, I made the tube to tube bikes, um, and I like the tube to tube bikes because they were uh, um, you can you know do a complete 100% full blown custom bike. Um, the reason I quit doing the tube to tube bikes was because when I moved to a smaller shop. I didn't have the space for all the finish work and the, just the, sort of the mess that the carbon fiber makes. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
I quit that and just started building metal bikes again or, you know, just stuck with the metal bikes. But when I was doing the tube to tube, I developed a relationship with this guy named Jared Nelson. He lives in New York. He's a professor at SUNY New Paltz, and he'll be actually here at nine this morning because we have a bunch of testing analysis to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then we have a mutual friend, Bill Cochran. And so the three of us started kicking around the idea of doing a real true, um, what you'd call a, um, you know, people refer to it as a, a monocoque frame. It's not really a true monocoque in that it's not one piece. Some people call them modular monocoques, but what they are is they're molded. They're not tubes connected to other tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, and those frames require a lot of engineering. They require a lot of testing. They require a lot of expensive tooling. Um, but what they do, do offer is they offer a much more sophisticated um, application of carbon fiber as a material. Its characteristics are nothing like metal, um, and when you make a tube-to-tube bike, you're basically making uh, what they call black aluminum, right? It's basically applying carbon fiber like a metal. Mm-hmm. So you lose a lot of the characteristics that make carbon fiber so unique and um, desirable for a bike frame. Mm-hmm. Does most of that have to do with the, the like sort of the you'd call like the grain orientation or whatever that like you can lay the the sort of the fibers in one direction or a different direction depending on whether you want it to be super stiff or compliant and over the whole frame you can make those decisions everywhere. Is that one of yep. the major differences? Yeah, it's one of the biggest differences. And also, you know, metal has, you know, if you take a steel tube, they all have the same um, modulus, right? Steel has the same modulus. So the way that you would tune a steel bike is by the tube wall thickness or the tube diameter. Mm-hmm. Um, those are your two choices. The, with carbon fiber, you can um, adjust fiber orientation and you can get carbon fiber in different modulus. Mm-hmm. Get a low, medium, or high modulus carbon fiber. Mm-hmm. So, but so you're adding a couple more elements to tunability. Yeah. Um, and so the downside of the carbon fiber is when you make it that way, you just don't have the adjustability that you do um, with a tube-to-tube bike. Although we're, you know, we're working on our tooling and we're developing more and more adjustability all the time. Like in terms but, of geometry. Yeah, geometry, mainly sizing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But one of the things we don't want to do is we don't want to have this white sheet custom, you know, because we want to start with a bike and say, all right, now we're going to make this bike fit you perfectly and maybe we'll tweak some geometry a little to, to your tastes or to your size. But this is the bike we want to sell. Um, this is what it's made to do. And, you know, if that fits your priorities and goals, then so be it. And with the custom bikes that Strong makes, it's all about, okay, tell us your priorities and goals and we'll make you a bike. Mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, one is, one is customer-centric and the other is bike-centric. And the reason we made the carbon fiber bike-centric is because we wanted to use the molded process, which restricted us, but also because we want to build a company that um, can grow independently from me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just... I'm just one of four owners, and um, then we have Eric from Alliance Bicycles working here, um, as well as his own company. 
And so we've got a, a team of really um, skillful and extremely experienced people all um, pitching in to create that end result. Yeah. So what what's the volume right now annually, like in terms of frames out the door? 35. 35. And that's something that you you expect will be sort of rising, but not exponentially. Yeah, we never expected to get super big. Um, but we do, we, we will let it grow, um, as we, as we are able to, um, you know, do so in a managed way where it doesn't affect our customer service performance or our manufacturing performance. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, the bikes are awesome. They're, they're phenomenal and we've been putting a lot of people on them and everybody loves them we've got a guy here locally who is a you know an ex-pro who tests a lot for us and he's been raving about them and we get true objective feedback from him because he has learned how to evaluate a bike um and and so he's been a pretty valuable resource for us and then ourselves also and then customer feedback although Typically, we're going to be biased and customers are going to be biased. Yeah. So, you know, and then we do a lot of testing because with carbon fiber, you're basically making your own raw material. It's, you know, I think it's analog to, you know, uh, creating your own steel alloy and drawing your own tubes, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can't just, unless you want to really overbuild the bike, you can't just assume it's going to be okay. You have to test it. And so... We test the raw materials so that we are employing accurate processed data into all our modeling, and then we have fatigue machines and impact machines, and we test deflections on sub-assemblies and stuff like that. So we're actually using all the same processes and methods that you would see a big company use. Mm-hmm. Um, our product is far more sophisticated than most of the medium-sized companies because we're not just abdicating manufacturing to uh, some Taiwanese company. We're probably more analog to uh, like a, a, a Trek where, you know, you actually have your own engineering and you're making your own prototypes. And our construction process is pretty similar to the top-of-the-line Treks where it's the frame is made in multiple parts and bonded together, but each part is made so perfectly. Um, and that's why we... Uh, that's why we do it in this, the smaller sub-assemblies is because you can get a perfect part with perfect compaction. You can get more compaction. You don't have to put in a safety factor for um, the fact that you, you know, you're using nylon bladders that produce a lot of wrinkling and uh, resin pooling and dry areas and stuff like that. Wow. I, I relate to that interest in always learning new stuff. Like you were saying, you know, for a builder to start in steel and to retire in steel. And for me, and uh, I was talking to this, you know, I think a third or so episode, we were talking to Julie Petalino and um, I see that a lot with her. But like, you know, you know, this desire to always be learning new stuff and moving in new directions, I'd certainly see that with you. I think it's a really, you know, refreshing and I mean, it's common in the frame building world, people who like taking on challenges and stuff, but um, I can see how, you know, learning the not only tube to tube carbon fiber, but now this would be just a really fun project to, uh, you know, nerd out on. Yeah. And there's, there's a big barrier to entry in this process, you know, so a lot of people aren't going to go there and 
one of the things that I saw happening was we went from, you know, 100 good frame builders to 1,000, right? Mm -hmm. And then as the frame builder community grew, you know, the customer community didn't grow equivalently. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you're, you're seeing all these people struggling and now, since there's, everybody seems to enter into frame building through steel, you're seeing a lot of people trying to move into titanium. Um, so then I figure, well, now everybody and their brother is going to be building titanium bikes in the next five years. Yeah. So, you know, if I want to, you know, stay ahead of the curve, I've, I've, I've got to develop. I can't just be stagnant. Mm-hmm. That yeah. was kind of part my thinking yeah yeah well i mean i can see that yeah one of the things i wanted to ask you about was um you know when you were first building bikes early 90s that was was that in the same garage geographically as where you are now like a different building but the same the same place yeah uh -huh. okay. so basically i live in my grandmother's house which i bought from her estate when she passed away um, but she was alive when I started building frames, and so I was living in a place that didn't have any place to build frames, so she let me just kind of take a corner of her garage, but it's unheated, and, you know, this is Montana. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I couldn't work year-round, so eventually I bought a house, and I, you know, I moved it behind there, and then um, slowly moved into commercial space, and, and then ultimately I bought this house, and then, um, Six years ago, I sold a commercial building I owned downtown, and um, I took some of the money that I made and I built a new garage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it's a, it's big and nice in terms of garages, but it's for the volume of business you do and the revenue you can generate. It's a really affordable, low overhead space. Yeah, we make you know we like to look at um, uh, dollars of revenue per square foot. You know, mm -hmm. and you look at some of the highest, you know, like Apple, for example, I mean, they feel like a million dollars per square foot or something like that. But we, you know, we have a little goal we kind of are toying with. And um, so that's kind of one of the things that's fun for us is how much gross revenue can we produce out of this thousand square foot shop? Yeah. You know, because I think most frame builders are doing like a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars a year, and and we, you know, between the two companies, we'll do you know far more than that, and um, we're going to do it out of this little bitty space, and it's not until we just are bursting at the seams will we move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, space is a hard thing for a lot of frame builders. That's something that I think about a lot because I've I've struggled with it sometimes finding the right spaces. And I know other people have, and if, if my business is to make products and to serve the people who are doing frame building, wouldn't it be great if I could give people good advice and guidance and like, you know, here's, here's the things you want to look for when you're signing a commercial lease or like, here's, you know, whatever. But like, I, I don't think I'm in a position to offer people that much help at this point because I've only rented a couple places and they were not totally legitimate always, you know, they were something that I knew about from a buddy and you know, like the one shop was in somebody's backyard. He had this building he wasn't using. And so, you know, I rented that for a couple of years. And now I'm renting from these people I used to work for who made cabinets. And it's too small. I have really good electrical service. And it is a commercially zoned space. But it's like 400 square feet. And it's less than, 
less than that that I can actually use. And I have a CNC machine plus all my frame building stuff and it's just too small. And it's, it's a trick for me because it's like, I know that I need to get more machines and I need to have more, you know, just room to breathe and room to store stuff and, and all that. But it's, um, it's not easy to just find, uh, you know, a hundred good spaces and pick the one that's just right for you. You know, it's hard to find an appropriate space at all. You look at like commercial warehouse space and manufacturing space. A lot of times they're looking at, you know, many thousands of square feet at the minimum that they want to lease to you. Yeah. And you know, the leases, you know, there's all sorts of leases too. You know, you can go in and you can just roll in and get a, 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 a gross lease, but most of them are net leases. So they're going to pass on a lot of their expenses to you. Yeah. Um, and of course, a lot of people don't understand that when you commit to a lease, you're not committing to a monthly payment. You're committing to the lump sum amount of the total lease and you're paying rent is your basically your monthly payment on that lump sum. So you can't just move in and you know if things don't go good move out and expect them to let you go yeah um so that commitment and then the other thing is um that when you're starting a business in the beginning you ha- there's all these little business trappings that you're going to be um uh tempted to pursue and you, you the the way to make money in business is to just not spend any right so just because you're a business and businesses have such and such, it doesn't mean you have to have such and such. Yeah. You can find a way to not spend money and you can, you know, find a way to continue running your business without increasing your overhead. I think you should do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you're, should always, you're, where you are should always be running a little bit behind your needs, not a little bit ahead of your needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always say, not that I have any authority to say this, but my understanding is always that like being a great frame builder is prerequisite to being a successful in business frame builder. So you got to be great at frame building and then you have to be a business operator. And so like, Uh, like you can't not have both, but, um, but really what's going to make you succeed in business is being that business operator, not being just, you know, based on the merits of your frames. I halfway agree. I mean, I, I got to say that, you know, you don't have to be a great frame builder. You have to be a mediocre frame builder and a good business person. Okay. Because you have to be a fast frame builder because you can't spend two weeks building a frame or you will never make any money, right? Mm-hmm. But most of the custom frame builders out there are mediocre. There's very few, like, really excellent frame builders yeah as far as i'm concerned having seen a lot of work and knowing what i'm looking at i can tell you that for a fact Mm -hmm. go to nabs and look and see how many wheels are sitting in the rear triangle crooked it will blow your mind (laughs) so i mean i think that with a clear conscience you can't be a mediocre frame builder and just sell the piss out of them because it's just not ethically okay to do that but at the end of the day i think frame building is the least important skill you need to be a professional frame builder i think you need to have style because personally i think it's turned into a fashion industry it's no longer a a, um, technical industry and i think you have to have good marketing chops and you have to have good sales 
um, skills and you have to be good interpersonally and you have to be a dis- disciplined with money. Um, those are the important things. You have to be organized because you only have so many hours in a day and organization is like, you know, creating time for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hate to sound like a curmudgeon, but, um, you know, I think, you know, you've seen a lot of frame builders come in the marketplace and they've got like 50, 100, 150, 200 frames under their belt. That's nothing, you know, mm-hmm. um, you it, you know to, when you 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 there's two two things you got to do to be a really good frame builder. One is you have to have repetition, um, but two is you have to have a data pool. You know, and if you've built like 50 bikes in five years or 50 bikes even in two years, you just have this little teeny data pool. So you don't you don't have that. Um, the information that you need to do really good job designing bikes, you don't, you know, you're not, don't have the repetition to build really high quality fast enough. You know, I mean, anybody can build a super high quality bike if they take enough time at it and throw away enough material, but to get it on the first try every time really quickly Mm -hmm. takes a lot of repetition. Yeah. I always think about, um, you know, when I'm struggling to make a bike with any speed, you know, just kind of working through it, I always think what I want to get to is a point where I can measure once and cut once. Not because I'm careless about it or the result doesn't matter, but because, you know, in order to, to actually get it done quickly enough to be sustainable as a, you know, if you're doing it as a business, I think you would need to mostly have that confidence and have done it enough times where you can say, okay, you know, the center to center, you know, top two miter distance is, you know, 600 whatever millimeters and you put it in and you cut it and you walk away. And, you know, when you go to fit it up in the, in the frame fixture, if it doesn't fit, then you maybe look into it, but you're not, you're not triple checking everything, uh, like I'm always doing because I'm, you know, I, I ordered one tube. I'm trying not to scrap it. I don't do this very often. And I think it's when you've done those things a thousand times or 10,000 times or whatever, uh, you can just kind of, you can just kind of walk, you know, you're saying you're not even rushing through the frame, but it just comes, it comes pretty quickly because you just at a nice walking pace, you're not stopping for anything and it just kind of gets done. Yeah, so if I'm like, I set my fixture and I put a bottom bracket and a head tube in it, and then I cut a C-tube and I stick it in the fixture, and 99 out of 100 times, it's right. Maybe 999 out of 1,000 times. Then I cut the head tube and I stick it in the fixture. If I screwed up, I was talking to somebody or it's a centimeter too short, which is usually always a centimeter too short or too long, I either recut it or I grab another tube and I stick it in. But I always have backup tubes because I'm going to make mistakes from time to time, typically because I'm distracted by somebody mm-hmm. talking something. And um, uh, so basically, you know, I do, I do measure once, but then the fail-safe is, you know, if, it, if I measure off the, off the, the blueprint, my bike CAD blueprint, um, uh, and I cut it to that, and the fixture's set, and I put the tube in, and it fits, then I know it's right. If it doesn't fit, I know it's either the fixture's wrong or the tube's wrong, and then I can double-check one or the other, both, and make sure it's right. So it keeps me from sending a bike out the door that I think is a 56, and it's actually a 55 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good check. You set up your frame fixture with the six or whatever main variables from bike CAD and then you cut the tubes according to bike CAD. And if, if they don't match up with each other, then 
it's a pretty good check. You can cruise through things with a, a fair amount of um, yeah certainty. Yeah, and a pitch for BikeCAD. You know, I bought BikeCAD. I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago, and I was working on just regular CAD prior to that. And um, BikeCAD's probably the, the the best investment I've made in any tool that I own by wow. a long shot. A yeah. long shot. Because it shaved so much time off the frame building, design and building process, it's not even funny. Yeah. I uh, I love BikeCAD, and I know Brent pretty well, and I'm definitely going to have him on the show. Uh, I think it's a great product. And it was one of the first frame building tools that I bought. I You know, I paid full retail price for it back in uh, 2012 or 2013. And, uh, you know, I was a real cheapskate and I didn't have very much access to cash. I didn't make any money at the jobs that I worked and I didn't even have a full-time job. But I, I bought it anyway because I could see that it was inevitably where I was going and it was going to save me so much headache and I have never for a second regretted it. I think it's, it's a really huge part of uh, how people do what they do with frame building. Yeah. I resisted it too long. I thought, um, I just didn't think it was ready, but then when I got it, it was like more than enough and it just gets better all the time. You have a lifetime license. He sends out updates regularly. They almost always have some new useful, um, feature, yeah. I love it. I can't have enough good things about it. If a person's a frame builder, and I mean, and just learning frame design too. I mean, you can just plug in these different variables and see how they influence all the others, and it really helps you understand frame design a lot more completely. I think. Yeah, and uh, you know, you can build if you are really good with three D CAD, you can build a um, parametrically linked model where you know you could. You could type in things like, you know, the the front center distance or whatever you wanted to define it by. And if you were really good with CAD, you could build models to do that. But it would be incredibly tedious to learn all the skills. To, that's a really complicated thing to do. And at the end of the day, you're still not going to have as many, uh, you know, like outputs that are you just click a dialog box thing and it just shows up. You know, it's uh, everything about bike CAD is streamlined for the task of designing a bike. And it, it just it's amazing. And, you know, time is money. So, I mean, you can do all that, but you can, for 500 bucks, you can yeah. just get bike pad. The, you know, one of the things going back to that rep, that whole revenue model I used as an example earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're doing $10,000 a week in sales, basically, right? That's a $2,000 a day. So with everything you do, you should put that value on it, Yep. you know? So if somebody walks through the door and they want you to retrofit a disc brake onto a titanium frame and it's going to take you an hour, well, you know that day is 2000 bucks. So you can come up with a pretty good um, time or cost estimate, you know, add in your, add in your materials costs. Mm-hmm. And so every time you buy anything, it needs to be compared to that metric because, um, you know, that that's that's what it's costing you to be there yeah and so like even when you go to nabs for example if it takes you a week to get ready and then you're gone for a couple days and and then it takes you a week to get you know back up to speed let's just say it's two weeks you got to add that twenty thousand dollars to the cost of nabs because you can't get that time back Mm -hmm. you know 
talk to Don. He tried to tell me, well, work weekends or, you know, don't take so many days off. I'm like, well, that's, you know, kind of pointless, right? I mean, (laughs) so, you know, when I think about NABs and return on investment, I plug that money, I plug that money in, you Mm -hmm. know, add it to all the hard costs. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree that, that that's how it is. You know, I think about tools in my shop with what I'm doing. Like I spent, to me, what's, you know, still quite a bit of money on a set of these uh, machining vices. I, I bought some nice ones, Kurt brand, you know, machining vices like a year ago. And they're single station vices, so I can hold basically two pieces in the machine at a time. And then I was like, well, you know, I can't afford a brand new CNC right now, but one way that I could expand my ability is to get dual station vices. Then I'd have four vice stations and that allows you to walk away from the machine longer so you can make better use of your own time and it cuts down on the tool change time. Seems like actually like one of the really big things that I could do. And so it's like, okay, I think this is valuable. And I, I bought these and it was like, even with a deal, it was like 2,600 bucks or something on these vices. And, uh, and yet, like, I think that's kind of a no brainer. And I feel like, um, a lot of people will say, you know, don't don't build anything you can buy. I think that's usually pretty valuable. And I think, I don't know, like any tool that's actually going to save you time or maybe expand the options that you have for what you can do, um, I don't know. I just think it's pretty useful. Like if you're actually selling stuff on a regular basis, you got to value your time. Uh, on the other hand, like you're saying, you know, like a lot of times, uh, you know, you get that experience level up. You don't need a tool for every single thing. Um, I mean, like, what what advice do you have to people to evaluate whether or not a tool is going to have the return to make it worth buying? Well, when you when you have more time than money, make tools, right? Because you've got the time to do it. Your time isn't worth anything at that point. So you might as well make tools. It helps you learn skills and get better at your craft, right? Mm-hmm. But as your business builds, you'll slowly have more money than time if you're making money. And then what you want to do is you want to look at um, your uh, anticipated time savings for any tool that you would invest in, and you want to look at how long it's going to take to pay that tool back, to Mm -hmm. pay for that tool, right? And typically what you do is you start at your biggest bottleneck. Where, Where are you slowest? Where are you really getting jammed up? And then those are the tools you invest in first. Mm-hmm. That's why so, w- one of my ideas a while ago was I was going to make a solution for flat mount brakes because I see how much hu- huge amounts of time that people waste fabricating for flat mount brakes. And I had a dropout in the works that I thought was really clever. It was modular with stainless steel frame components and aluminum inserts and I never got that exactly where I wanted to, and I got busy with other stuff, but um, I could see that that was something that would just solve a very concrete problem for builders. Yeah, and I think you need to understand, as a frame builder, you know, how much time does everything take? Like, for example, Dave Kirk does, you know, lug and fill brace steel bikes, mm-hmm. and he'd love to have a a, a mill, an e-mill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I talked to him last about it, he's like, well, you know, it's going to save me 20 minutes a bike. I make 35 bikes a year, you know. I mean, it would take me decades to pay for the mill. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of pointless to own it. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to buy the mill because you want the mill, buy the mill because you want the mill, but don't fool yourself into thinking you just made a business investment because you didn't. You just wasted a bunch of money on a mill. Mm-hmm. 
So, no. It, now, if you're going to do the full anvil setup, I call it the frame builder kit. He hates it when I call it that, but basically that's what it is. You can buy every miring fixture and frame fixture and a brake mount fixture and everything, and boom, you're ready to rock and roll. You can spend whatever that costs, 26000 or $30,000. And um, if you have the capital, you know, go for it. Um, uh, I would never borrow money to pay for that stuff. I think that's, that would be crazy. Unless yeah. all, all unless all the orders are in place and you're just trying to get them made, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, but I think you have to at every purchase. You know, you have to look at it with the sober eye of a business person. You know what? You know what's my what's my payback on this? And you know, and then look at what are the alternative things that I can do with this money? Can I spend this money on marketing and get more value out of it? Can I? Um, spend this money on a different tool that's not as romantic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and get a better rate of return out of it. And buy the one that's best for the business, not the one that you want because it's going to look good in your shop. And it's the same when I see people doing things like making bottom bracket shells. You know, it's like, I don't know about that. They're pretty cheap at Paragon. You don't have to stock them. You don't have to take any time to make them. They all look the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I, I don't know. I just think it's, crazy really yeah yeah and yeah i used to think about it like well i work at a bike shop and i make ten dollars an hour so for me to buy some frame building tool um you know like i would never i would never make enough bikes to you know to save enough time to pay that back or something so i'd never buy any of that stuff meanwhile yeah like the you know the fastest i ever made a bike took me like an entire week or something and uh and you think about you know, like you're saying, you can make a bike now in like, you know, three hours or something for a steel one. So if you want to get to that point, and if your shop still only costs, you know, maybe, uh, you know, whatever it is, 20, 50, however many grand it is for all the machines and stuff you need. And a lot of that really is experience, but like, but you know, you can't buy experience, you can buy tools. Um, you know, like it's, it's still a relatively affordable business. You think about like you were saying, you know, you could have like a, a more of a scale production frame building shop where, uh, you know, it's just so many machines and employees and all this stuff, and you still not might not make that much more. So I feel like there is something to be said for, like, the relatively low cost uh, to get in to the, uh, you know, frame-building business model, I guess, you know, compared to a lot of things. Yeah, I think if I had to replace my shop, it would be, you know, it'd be a lot less than I paid for it because I know what I need now and what I don't need. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would—it really—it it wouldn't be that expensive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing the the sort of revenue numbers that you have and that you talk about. You know, considering like you don't need uh, you know a hundred thousand dollars CNC mill and you don't need you know these big heat treating ovens and you know you don't need that much space. I think space is one of the most complicating things for people and one of the most expensive things is where you're going to put it. You need to be allowed to do hot work. You need to be, you know, you need to have power for your machines and some amount of ventilation. And that's just, uh, that can be more complicated than anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think people, you know, frame builders and they get in, it's, 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 it's really, really, really simple. All of it's really simple. But I think we have a tendency to get into the business and make it really complicated. I know I did and struggled for a long time before I finally figured it out. 
It's it's not that hard. Do as much as you can with as little as you can get away with. <laughs> yeah. To be a frame builder. Now, if you want to be a business owner, that's a whole different thing, you know. And then it you know it changes everything. Yeah. And that's the whole point I've you know I've been trying to make to people is become a good frame builder and then grow from there. So at least you're you know you've been a successful frame builder and. And you know you've learned all the lessons that it has to provide. Um, don't don't think you can grow into profitability because if you can't make money as a single frame builder, you're probably not going to make money as as a you know, a production frame builder. You yeah. Because you haven't figured out how to make the money yet. You know, mm-hmm. figure out how to make the money and then grow. You know, grow that process. Don't don't try to grow into profitability. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, I think that's most of the questions that I had lined up for um, the interview time that we had allotted. I mean, you know, the way that I think about these calls is they, they're intended to be interesting to frame builder types. Is there any general advice that you want to give to folks or perspective that you wish you had when you got started? You know, anything that you can think of that we haven't already covered? You know, I think we covered it all, you know. I think at the end of the day, as a frame builder, you know, it's a lot of jobs all blended into one. You have to be good at them all. I've always kind of thought that, you know, one of one of the reasons that I've managed to make it work is because I'm really average at everything. I'm not really good at any one thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it's been it's been helpful. The, um, but just do as much as you can with as, as little as you can get away with and, and try to be, don't just try to be a good frame builder because it seems like all the frame builders, that's what they're learning, that's what they want, they're most interested in, and that's where they focus their attention. But learn how to run a business, learn accounting, get QuickBooks, get ByteCAD, um, look at, um, learn how to sell, learn about marketing, buy books, read. There's so much information out there, the web, Amazon. I mean, don't just hyper-focus on the one frame-building element because it truly is a, a very small sliver of the whole activity, and you will be neglecting far more important things if all you do is buy machine tools and try to become a better welder or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think when I was younger, I assumed it was sort of a meritocracy where if you make really exceptionally beautiful and well-made frames um, that like frame frame custom bike connoisseurs would just kind of poof, they would just appear and they'd have their checkbook and they'd make a deposit on a frame. And, and I also assumed that like you wouldn't necessarily make any money, but you know, you could, uh, you could do something you enjoyed. And I just had all these weird assumptions that I don't know why I assumed it was going to be that way. But uh, I don't think it is just like a meritocracy where people notice you when you do, oh. when you do great work. Uh, I think a lot of your customers don't have the base of experience to know the difference between you know, a, a decent frame and an exceptional frame. And, uh, and frankly, that's not probably why they're buying. They're probably more interested in how it affects their life. And the craftsmanship probably doesn't affect their life as much as the fit and the, the customer experience and all these other things. Yeah, at a certain point, it doesn't, you know. And that's the thing is the customer can only recognize so much. And so that's why so many people are getting away with so much because, you know, the customer can't tell. 
And, um, you know, they're probably not going to benefit from the difference, really. You know, I mean, if they get on the bike and holds together and it goes straight when their hands are off the handlebars and it serves the purpose that they wanted it for and they've gotten the value from it that they, that they wanted, whatever that may be, it's typically not the craftsmanship, though, um, then they're happy. And that's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think that there's a lot of frustrated builders out there that are really, truly great builders and struggle to sell bikes because it's not a meritocracy. Yeah. At this point in our conversation, uh, when I was talking to Carl, he had to attend to an emergency. There was a dog that he was fostering that got out of his shop. He had to chase after it. And so there's not a lot of continuity between the conversation we were having and where it picks up again. Just FYI. Uh, let's get back into it, though. Yeah. Well, first, let me say, whenever I do these interviews, I, I always sound like I feel like I sound like a know-it-all, and I don't want to be overly opinionated, and I don't want to sound like there's only one way to do things, and it's my way. I just want to basically make the point that I'm just trying to help people get started as one person frame building shop where they're making selling frames, you know, and then from there, I would like to see people, you know, follow their dreams. I just feel like they need to, they need to learn how to profitably build a frame. And um, until they do that, it's probably going to be a much bigger challenge to grow into anything more um, for most people. And yeah. so, you know, the pitfalls are don't spend money that you don't have to um, do as much as possible as possible with as little as possible. Um, um, when you do make investments, make sure that you start with the biggest bottlenecks. And um, if you're going to buy something just because you want it and it really can't be justified by a business, um, you know, from a business perspective, at least be conscious that you're purchasing it for emotional reasons and not business reasons. Yeah. Um, and then also understand that, you know, every, every, most of your costs, you're not even writing checks to pay directly. So um, value your time. Put a price on your time. Um, it will be much higher than you think it should be. Um, I can't, I, you know, imagine, you know, working for less than 200 bucks an hour probably. Um, and, you know, by the time everybody gets their little piece of that money and by you know that you pay taxes on it and everything else there's a remarkably small amount left over so um and and don't build forks <laughs> <laughs> that's funny i've uh, i've seen at least a couple of your older bikes that had forks on them so um i know that comes from experience yeah i think it's i built to... more forks than i built frames actually yeah well you know you figure the cost of materials in a fork is yeah, about half of a frame. The amount of time is about half of a frame. But you end up getting, what, a, a tenth of the price or a fifth of the price. So Yeah, and it's a, steel, <clears throat> it's a steel fork, so it's not like it has any huge performance advantage or anything. Yeah, and nowadays you can't get good fork, you know, fork, steel fork, unicrown fork blades, or at least the ones I like you can't get anymore. So, you know, if you do a lugged fork, there's still a lot of good stuff out there. But um, uh, but that, that was more of a joke than anything. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, like, uh, I like building a segmented fork. I think it's kind of cool. You don't see those too often, so those are fun to make. But, yeah, I totally understand, um, 
you know, just from, from trying to sell what actually works and is profitable, the fork is not where you're making your money. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I hate to sound like I'm all about money because I'm really not. I love frame building. I love the craft. I want to be great at it. Oh, and here's something. This is probably something I could have started with is you have month profit is not a dirty word. You have to make a living building frames if you want to build frames, or otherwise you're going to do it as a hobby, and you will never be great at frame building if you're doing it at a hobby level because you just don't do enough. Mm -hmm. So rather than thinking about profit as like um, some bad thing where you're ending up with money you don't deserve, think about it as a way to continually improve your um, product and your services and what you have to offer to people. Because at the end of the day, if you're not making money, you're not building frames, at least not enough to be great at it. And you got to buy a house. you got to save for retirement. If you have children, you should put them through college. You want to be able to give money back to the community. So living off of thirty dollars or $40,000 or $50,000 a year is it's doable, but I mean, it doesn't allow you the freedom to do as much for your community as you could um, otherwise. And I'm really huge on community and trying to be a, a, a contributing member of this community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if you can't, uh, if you can't afford to do that thing that you want to do with your time full time, or if you can't do it sustainably, then I feel like it becomes difficult to like totally take care of your customers because you're, um, you're, you know, you're always short of time or, uh, you might not be in business when they need help with something later, you know, like what if you make a frame for somebody and now it has failed and you're long gone and, um, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of screwed or something. I feel like there's a lot of reasons why, um, you know, you don't need to be getting rich off people and not even showing up for work. But, you know, if you can't pay your own bills and if you can't, uh, afford to spend your full time on it, then, uh, you can't really feel that guilty about charging what you got to charge. Yeah. And, you know, also, um, uh, like, for example, if I miss on a fit and a person's like, well, you know, this fits close, but it's just not quite right. Well, what I'll do is I'll build them, I'll let them keep the bike they have, and I'll build them another one, and I'll send it to them. And then I will have them take the new frame to a bike shop, and they'll pay the bike shop to swap out the frame. Then they'll send me the old frame back, and I'll pay the bike shop fee. So that could cost me two to $500 in shipping and um, bike shop service plus the extra frame. Mm -hmm. And I can afford to do that because I make a profit. Yep. Or... Um, Maybe somebody breaks a uh, Envy wheel and Envy wants to see the broken wheel before they warranty it. I will send my customer, I'll buy a wheel and I'll send it to them and then I will deal with Envy. And um, that saves my customer from having to um, send a wheel back and not have a wheel while Envy evaluates it or whatever. And Envy has great customer service, so they're, you know, maybe not the best example, but. Um, you know, so you got to, you know, if you want to give that over the top service, um, sometimes it costs a lot of money. I had a bike go to New York not long ago and it had campy EPS and somehow or another the wires got all bent up 
and one of them broke. So then they took it to the local bike shop. And so then I started dealing with the bike shop directly and I sent them the replacement battery and wire wires and all that stuff. And then I paid the bike shop. And so the customer, all they had to do is drop it off and pick it up and everything in between, I was able to take care of for them. Yeah. Yeah. When you're working on slim margins and, uh, and you're working, you know, another job in the you know, in your daytime hours or something in order to make it work. It's just hard to be, uh, that like available to service people and their needs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I super appreciate you making the time to be on the show. I think your perspective is really refreshing in the frame building world. And if it hadn't been for the things that you had said about, you know, the business model of frame building, I think I would have like gotten tired of it and jaded about it a lot sooner and I think it's your perspective about frame building that makes me feel the most excited about the, the like the world of frame building. And uh, I don't know, I still feel like I would like to make more frames at some point, which at this point is probably just going to be relegated to things that I can learn from and things that I can make YouTube content on. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the the sort of position that you have in the industry and, and the advice that you offer to other people. I think it's ne- not needed. Uh, I think it's definitely needed. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. And it's, it's fun watching you and your, and your work and what you're doing. You're doing a great job. I like to see smart young people with lots of energy. Um, you know, that's um, always exciting. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Cool. Well, well thank, yeah, thanks I'll, a lot for considering me for the show. Absolutely. Yep. It was a no brainer. And, uh, you know, if we're doing the show for long enough, maybe we'll circle back and do another episode. We'll talk more about pursuit in a couple years or something. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, also, um, you know, if you ever really want to get into the weeds on, um, pursuit, I would recommend you talk to our engineer, Jared. Oh, cool. Yeah. Maybe I'll have him on the show. Yeah. He'd be a value. He, I mean, he's, he knows a lot. He's got a PhD in mechanical engineering and it specializes in composites and, when it gets to the engineering side of things, I pre- I prefer people talk to him anyway. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. See ya. Yeah. Bye.